Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was chaos because all of the, you know, the, the Aussies were everywhere. Some were on the right, some were on the left, some were down the middle. They needed to get the ball back. We were trying to cover all bases, and then they kicked it off quick. Welcome back. In 1998, England halfback Matt Dawson went on tour to Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa as captain of the national side. Labelled the tour from hell, thrashed in every test, lessons were learned, and five years later they would return down under as the number one rugby team on the planet and become world champions. This is the story of how they rebuilt from the ashes to lift the William Webb Ellis Trophy. Before we get started, AG1 are supporting us again this episode. I'm a massive fan of AG1, not just because they support the podcast, but because it makes it super easy for me to get all the nutrients I need each day in just one easy hit. I take one spoon every morning and it means I don't have to worry about taking a bunch of different things. I can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day. Couldn't be easier. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, your probiotic, in just one simple drinkable habit. And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to ag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's ag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. I've also got a massive announcement for me and for the podcast. The Andy Rose Show has partnered up with Buffalo Trace to announce our first ever series of live shows in London. I'm so pumped about this. Every show is set in an intimate setting. So think maximum 40 tickets to be sold for each venue You're sitting around having a whiskey hearing some stories a bit of audience interaction as well the guest lineup has already been confirmed with some of our favorite previous guests already locked in each show will have two guests and will involve as i said some audience interaction as well if you fancy asking some questions but you don't have to so we've got undercover football hooligan james bannon sas veteran nigel ely red arrows and top gun pilot dan lowe's chinook chick liz mcconaughey the prison governor, Vanessa Frake, rogue warrior, Denny Denham, sex cult escapee, Bexie Cameron, and of course, we've got the futurist, Matt Griffin. The first show is on Wednesday, the 12th of July at the Marquis Westminster in Victoria. Then we go to the Eagle in Ladbrook Grove on Wednesday, the 26th of July. The following month, we're at the Grafton in Kentish Town on August the 9th. And then our final show in the series will be August 23rd at the Duchess, just off Oxford Street. Check out my social media for more information or just go to Design My Night and search Andy Rowe to get your tickets before they sell out. As I said, very intimate location. Not many tickets are going on sale. They're only 15 quid and you get a free Buffalo Trace cocktail or Warner's Gin and Tonic with that as well. This episode was organised by the legends at Sports Travel and Hospitality UK. STH is an official hospitality sales agent for the Rugby World Cup in France. They can help you purchase hospitality packages for this year's tournament. Just visit sthuk.com or click on the link which I'll put in the description of this episode. Hope you enjoy the episode. Matt Dawson, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be on the show. You 
Could have played for Chelsea Football Club. Played for Chelsea Schoolboys. Playing rugby at the weekend on a Saturday, and then Sunday I'd play football for Flackwell Heath. Uh, and then I got sort of scouted by a mate's dad who was, I think it was on the board at Chelsea at that time. It was the school said to me, you're going to have to stop that. One, there's too much homework going to be coming your way. Uh, we're a rugby school. You've got to focus on your rugby. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Move on. And then how did that progress to you? You ended up in New Zealand. Uh, that was when I was probably 19. And back then, the off-season, you'd finish wouldn't really go too far into May. There'd be a little bit sevens. Then you'd have, you know, quite a significant couple of months off before mm. the season would start again. A lot of the time, those younger players who maybe looked like they could be, you know, England under 20s or that sort of, they would all, we would all disappear and play in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly Australia and New Zealand. So I, mm. I went down and had three months with a club called Te Aumutu. Te Aumutu. Yeah. And played with a coach was a guy called John Sisley. He was mates with my Northampton coach called Glenn Ross. Lived with Glenn Ross in Hamilton for a couple of weeks and then moved to RD3 and was living in the absolute, well, as it is, rural district three, middle of nowhere, climbing up trees, pruning trees with chainsaws. My God. Fire, you know, those petrol tanks on the, like in a backpack with a jet spray that would, that would like get, <laughs> you know, you'd be like absolutely burning the fields apart. And then Tuesday and Thursday nights, we'd be going down to Tiamutu to, to train and then have a boiled sausage and a bit of bread and a couple of beers, then get in the truck, get in the ute back on a Tuesday and Thursday night, stop, always stop on the same corner grab a crowbar, put the headlights on the ute and it would startle the turkeys on the fence and you'd creep around the back of the turkeys and... Nick a turkey yeah. for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do you think like that kind of part of your rugby development impacted you in the long run? Yeah, it was tremendous life experience you know, outside of the rugby. But you know, rugby-wise, it was well, it was senior rugby. I was, I was playing you know, men's rugby... And it was tough. You know, it, was, it was uncompromising, week to week, great standard, played with a couple of, you know, sort of then weren't all blacks at the time, but then would go into you know, be all black, Strawbridge, Foster. Foster was my fly half at Tiamutu. It was really, it was a real good education to then come back. To, it took me really from that schoolboy under 19 rugby to, you know, ready to play senior rugby. And then fast forward to 1998, you go back to New Zealand, you go back to Australia, you go back to South Africa, the tour from hell. Another big moment of rugby development for you, not just for you, but for England as well, because you you were captain. Yeah, England. I mean, New Zealand was always a tough place to go. So then going down to, going down in 98, being captain, you know, I was injured to start with. So I was fighting to get fit, but then, you know, wanted to play in these games, played in a midweek game then in the test match but you know getting hammered getting mm. absolutely hammered you know, we, and we, you know we had a second third string England side none of the you know Martin Johnson's Delalio's Richard Hill none of those guys were around you know it was a very young naive team going into the bear pit and yeah you know, we got we got found out but within that group there were maybe half a dozen players that really stood up and mm. put their name on the rugby map there. And certainly Clive 
I think, looked at about half a dozen players to say, you know, look, I can absolutely take you anywhere. If you can if you can come out of that trip with your head held high and a bit of reputation enhanced, then, you know, you're the, you're the right type type of character for me going forward so as much as there were a lot of players that maybe didn't play for England again there were a lot of players there that absolutely kick-started their career. Could you tell the people that weren't going to make it? Certainly looking back there are there are characteristics within sports people that just sometimes elevate them to a different level to anybody else and that is the way that they train, the way that they prepare, whether they mentally they're ready for the game physically, how they socialise, how they communicate, you know, what's important to them, general energy levels, you know, how they interact with other players. You look back and people like Johnny Wilkinson, Josh Lucy. The stars that carried on. Yeah. You, you could, when you look back, you can see they were demonstrating those characteristics back yeah, in 98. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Those players, they might not have made it to... Five, say five years into the World Cup, but there were players in in that team that you knew were going to play for England for a, a few more years because they they had it they had it within them to take themselves to the to the next level. Yeah, there was a turning point on that tour, wasn't there? Where you guys have been pasted by Australia and New Zealand, and you go to South Africa and you check into a hotel. Clive ended up checking you out of that hotel and into a different one for some reason. Can you sort of talk me through the mentality behind that? Well, we we had got got into Cape Town last game of the of the tour, and it was only a three week tour. But we'd been to Australia, New Zealand, two tests in New Zealand. Then we flew to South Africa. Brutal. It was absolutely horrific. And I, I remember being on a flight to South Africa and all, and the conversation was, what on earth? Whoever are the governing body, whether it's the RFU or World Rugby or whoever, whoever has come up with this, I mean, it's, it's an absolute shambles. Mm. And we got into this hotel in Cape Town, actually where the Lions had stayed the year before, but it was an absolute shambles. I mean, what had happened to the place in a year was just remarkable. Anyway, we got in there and we weren't on the same floor and it was all a bit tatty and there was other rugby teams in there and it, you know, it it, it was a little bit disorganised. But ordinarily, you just get on with it. You know, got a week to go, let's just move on. Whereas Clive just wasn't having it. Clive was like, this is not acceptable because of what the players have done. And then you put them in what is a really tatty hotel we're moving. The manager at the time was like, we're not moving, Clive. We can't move. We can't afford it. But anyway, he, Clive went up to the Mount Nelson up on the hill, which is a significantly more starred hotel than the Holiday Inn, and just put his card behind there and said, right, I want however many, 30 rooms or whatever it is. So we all piled in there for the week. And I'd love to say, and then we won the game. We still lost the game. <laughs> um, however, I, I think there was... It, you know, that was certainly one of the moments where I, I look back at Clive, and as much as you know, he made himself open to criticism because you know of the, the nature of the guy, and he was always trying to push the boundaries and all the rest of it. But there were certain moments in my relationship with Clive over the years where you just think that I mean, you you are so focused on success and winning and making the team as best as possible, making your coaching staff as but you know, and that was an example where I don't care about all the results, I don't care about what's going on. This is gonna give my team a better chance at the weekend. You know, he was 
absolutely dedicated to success then mm. and he showed that throughout um going all the way through to the world cup it would be so easy for people to think oh well, look at all the players he had in the world cup anybody could have coached that well that's just nonsense if clive created all of that created the environment with his coaching staff with the rfu and him absolutely at the helm to then for us to blossom into our you know more experienced mindset that we could own it on the field when he wanted us to own it when we're playing the game and he would own it away from the field so going into the 99 world cup off the back of that tour in 98 what were your expectations oh 99 we were we were convinced we were going to win it really oh yeah we I mean it was i think looking back we were deluded but um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the preparation, the training we did down in Brisbane, you know, we were fully tech. We had our own laptops and we were, you know, on the internet. It was all new. We were had our own, you know, filer faxes and kit and, you know, initials everywhere on this. You know, we thought we had it all. You know, we were doing more training than anybody else and but it was just slightly misdirected. It was slightly generic rather than going into 03. It was really bespoke and specific to the individual, whether it was their diet or their training regime or their skills. Everything was, right, this is what you need to improve on daily or or be good at daily. Work on it. Mm. Whereas in 99, it was right. Okay, all the backs, you're all going to do that amount of fitness and that type of fitness. And forwards, you're doing all of those weights and all of that scrummage. You know, it wasn't as tailored. But we, I mean, we trained, we say overtrained, but we trained ridiculously. But I'm just not sure we trained in a manner that was going to be good enough to win the World Cup. Well, yeah, as it panned out, we you know, we didn't have the strategy and sort of management agility and flexibility on the pitch to be you know, South Africa quarterfinal, having loads of drop goals, right, what are we going to do? Rather than just concentrating on what we were doing, we should have been creating a plan to negate what South Africa were doing. Whereas you fast, yeah, I need to be a knocking over five droppies. Yeah, whereas you fast forward that to the quarterfinal against Wales when we were up against it again, half-time, Absolutely knocked it out of the park, made a substitution, slightly changed the way that we play. Baba had it, I mean, second half, done, dusted. Mm. Will scores his try in the corner after Robbo's break. It was, you know, and that was game done, dropped goals from Johnny. And it was just, whereas four years before, we didn't have that capacity to do that. The 99 World Cup, you guys had a rough run though, because it was so key that you beat New Zealand in the pool play otherwise you get essentially three games in a week leading into a quarter final because you would be the number two in that pool mm. that game against New Zealand I just want to touch on it a little bit because it was one of the famous Jonah Lomu tries and you were involved in that can you kind of talk me through your perspective on that situation yeah. um well I was I was one of one of many England players to be shrugged off and thrown around like a rag doll by Jonah Lomu. And on that occasion, I mean, funnily enough, I remember in the team run, because Austin Healy was marking Jonah and Jerry Guskett was taking the mickey out of Austin. He was doing like sort of like flapping around on the floor like a fish, as if to say, you know, this is what's going to be happening against you. 
really? at the weekend and giving him loads of stick. I'm fairly sure if you look at the clip, Jerry's one of the players that Jonah like shrugs off. And then I jump on him and he shrugs me off and then we all pile in the corner, but he scored already. But yeah, I mean, Jonah was an incredible athlete. As much as Lot was made out, you know, that semi-final in 95 and pool game in 99, there were many, many teams who failed to put Jonah to the sword. He was, uh, he was an incredible, incredible athlete. Were you in the changing rooms? Was it a true story? It might have been just someone doing an after-dinner speak. Clive was talking about how... He wouldn't swap any of your players for a New Zealand player. That was on the flip chart on the Friday night and he pulled the first page of the flip chart and both teams were one to fifteen were side by side and he's you know, that you know, most coaches, you know, look at that England side. I mean, look at those names there. Johnson, Delalio, Rodber, Peel, you know that. Um, why do we want anybody else in our team? That's that's our England team, and we all of us looked at Austin as if to say, "Well, probably have Jonah more than you, Oz." But to Austin's credit, he put his hand up, and said, "Clive, I would have Jonah in my team all day long." Sorry <laughs> about that. He's always very good at being self-deprecating. Then losing in that tournament, how did that kind of how did that prep you apart from the training going forward? Looking at 2003, it's four years away. What have you learned from 99? Well, I mean, it was pretty immediate uh, when we had a very quick debrief in Paris after the game where we were understandably peed off. And Clive pretty much set the challenge there. I was like, guys, some of you are going to make it, some of you aren't. It was like, I don't even know where I'll be in four years' time, but I want to be. And I'm going to dedicate myself to making sure that we're going to win it in 2003. I mean, he was pretty bullish you know which is an easy thing to say but he was making it very apparent to us that you know there were a lot of things that were in our control that we that we didn't bring to the party and performing and that you know there wasn't a lack of effort or training or physicality that was the the little as he would call them one percenters whether it's you know how you communicate with your team uh, little cliques doing the basics well how much were you really prepared to sacrifice? Could you have trained harder? Could you have made better decisions? All, all the little things that everybody talks about, but he was quite angry and was, guys, please don't bother coming back unless you're prepared to absolutely throw yourself at it for four years. And he kept that fire lit over that four-year period and players were coming and going and you'd be in the team, you'd be out of the team if your performance wasn't up to stay. You know, he'd set the bar very, very high because he believed that's where we faltered somewhat and that we were just a little bit hot and cold where we, we needed to be the best team in the world, have the best basics and drills in the world and best coaches, best management, best players, best combination, best basics, then we were going to be in with a chance. And then with that high standard, you were kind of in and out of the starting lineup squad. I know Clive sent you a Christmas card at one point. Yeah, I, I was captain in 2000, 2001, thinking that everything was tickety-boo going in the right direction. But then got distracted around the captaincy and getting all the corporate attention and sponsors and media and or, you know, and just lost my focus on the game. I really enjoyed captaincy I think it brought out some of the best rugby that I've ever played for England but I just got ahead of myself a little bit and 
you know, Clive pulled me up, sent me notes and cards saying, you know, one occasion I remember him saying, you know, you've got a lot of work to do to even get back in the squad. You're probably my number five scrum half in the country. Jesus. Yeah. Right. Okay. And of course you're at, I'm angry and I'm disagreeing with him and rather than accepting it and thinking, why is he saying that? But then I, then there was a coach called Wayne Smith who came in. He was my coach 2001, 2002, maybe at Northampton. He was really good at, whereas Clive was quite blunt and this is how it is. Deal with it. Smithy was, he came in and gave me some home truths, but in a, in a sort of like a fatherly or a big brother type role. What were the home truths? My head was, you know, stuck at my rear a little bit. Um, because I was doing a lot of media and corporate and everyone's patting you on the back and saying how great you are because they see you doing this, mm. that and the other. So, yeah, I, I just you know, lost, lost a lot of focus. But then Smithy really took it on himself to put his arm around me and then he, he started to make me help him with the coaching, doing loads of analysis on the teams. And Northampton would never have known that I was necessarily doing all of that analysis but smithy was tapping into my skill set because he just you know he saw that i was pretty good at that so we'll just use that but we don't need to talk about that in front of the players and he would present it and i would you know go away and do my homework bring it back to him and i was starting to ground myself a little bit more mm. which was generally very good for me really good for me and, and you know it stood me in good stead really for the rest of my life after that it was good Really, Wayne Smith had that much. Oh, hundred percent. Him, Smithy. It's a, it's a, Ian McGeek in my early years at Northampton. Smithy, hundred percent. Sean Edwards at Wasps and Clive. No question about that. I wouldn't have necessarily recognised that from Clive at the time. That's more reflective for me. I look back and think he was absolutely brilliant for me. But because of where I was in in my own mind, I was biting back and not necessarily reacting thankfully i did eventually it clocked with me how why he was being who he was to me but there were a few years where i was just thinking you know well i'm absolutely screwed he hates me or i can't work him out i didn't have the backup around me to say well hold on a minute maybe he's doing that because he's going to get you over here i didn't have that part of the puzzle worked out in my mind you couldn't quite see the bigger picture yeah Going into the 2003 World Cup, you guys are really going in off some good form. And, and I think it was the Grand Slam in Dublin. It was a massive game for England, that. Huge. People talk about the going down and beating New Zealand and Australia in the summer before the World Cup, which, you know, of course, winning away from home was really important. But the pressure we put on ourselves to win that Grand Slam game in 2003, effectively saying to ourselves, if we don't win this game, we're not going to win the World Cup. This is the game that you have to prove yourselves. It just cemented it all together that we were absolutely on the right charge here. We were in the right line. We All that shenanigans about the red carpet. Yeah, what happened there? Well, the people told us to go and stand on that side. We'd warmed up that side. The guy in the tunnel said, right, go out, run right. Yeah, fine, we went out, run right. So then, then they come in and say, oh, no, that's where Ireland stand. Well, you've just told us to stand here. We're not going anywhere. And the rumour would go down the line that they're trying to get us to move. And then... Like Chinese whispers would go all the way down the line. We'd send it back, tell him to not move. Uh, <laughs> we're staying exactly where we are. I didn't even realise that the Irish team were so intent on standing on the left that they actually 
what either walked behind us or something and stood on the left so off the red carpet what i don't even i don't at the time i mean i've seen it on tv loads of times but at the time i don't even remember that it was for for us it was at just nothing nothing whatsoever it just john o'sana going we're not going to be the mugs here you have told us to stand here and this is what we're doing and now you're trying to mess us around and move us. No, if you made a mistake, suck it up, get on with it. And that, and you know, it sort of epitomised what that team were like. You know, they were uncompromising. We were stubborn. No one was going to mess around with us. Certainly no one was going to mess around with Jono. And, you know, we were not going to budge. Didn't, didn't matter whether we were playing away from home, you're getting booed at, jeered at. Didn't it's like, no, this is why we're here to do what we do. And you're not going to knock us off course whereas if I was captain would I have moved well maybe yeah maybe the nature of me would have gone well I don't want to maybe upset everyone let's move you know mm. would that have been the right thing wrong thing I don't know but it you know looking back at it if we had moved is it slightly submissive then maybe it is you know all those mind games that play around it was John was like absolutely not we're not going anywhere it's so good made you guys so unlikable though yeah then you then you come well, we down. We quite like that. Yeah, you did. And you did the Southern Hemisphere tour. How important was were those games for you to win? The last piece of the puzzle for that for that England squad. We'd got to number one in the world. We were beating Southern Hemisphere teams at Twickenham. The only piece in the puzzle was that we'd not won in New Zealand. Can't remember whether we'd won in Australia. You know, that was where the World Cup was going to be. This was a genuine marker to the rugby world that not only are we the number one team in the world, but it doesn't matter where we're doing it. And Phil Larder, the defensive coach, saying to us, this is semi-final, final rugby. For for England, this is the mentality. New Zealand semi-final, Australia is the final. Knockout, have to win them. It's in an environment that you're going to be doing. You're going to be down here in however many months' time. We were probably more ready in that June, July, August than we were actually in the World Cup. Mm. I remember we were pretty confident. We, you know, we had some pretty pretty good outside bets. with Carlos in his oh, pomp as well. The trouble is those sorts of players, the way that England were in that day and how we defended, the flasher, the fly half, the better. Really? Oh, my God. That was meat and drink for England because we were so good defensively. It was so high, high line and, and real hard press. You, know, you look at the French fella, uh, Michelac, and then who would have been in, in Australia? Was it Larkham? Larkham. Those playmakers, we were just like, we pride ourselves on getting stuck into nines and tens. Whenever we had training sessions and board sessions in meeting rooms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The key individuals to stifle, stop at sores, nine and ten. What we, whatever we're going to do, how are we going to get stuck into nine and ten? Who's going to apply pressure to nine and ten? So seeing people like Carlos, you know, flicking it through their legs and doing all the fancy, we were like, yep, yeah, keep doing that all day long. Let's fast forward to the World Cup and actually get back to Australia. You you go and the, the I think you guys were training for like two three months at least. I saw your training regime. You, you're starting at seven a.m. in the morning, finishing God knows what hour each night. But you guys were I know professionals living and breathing rugby full time. But you guys were there was nothing else going on in your lives apart from being in this training camp, training day in day out all day every day for like two three months. Yeah, they they probably see it as relatively normal now, but you know that was a massive transition. To be part of that from sort of amateur to professional with a small P to full on as it would be now, it, I bet you it wouldn't be too different to how it is now. And that's you know very early starts, getting in the gym, nutrition, skills training, nutrition, team training, nutrition. We weren't allowed out of our rooms between two and four o'clock or something. We were told we had to sleep. It's like no one was allowed in the corridors. I was allowed in the team rooms. So you had to then sleep from two till four. Then you would get up and do another fitness session or teams. I mean, it, we were... Dad's army, you would, have, you would have loved having that afternoon nap. Oh, yeah, I loved the nap. I still do. I, I reckon we were doing... We must have been doing four or five sessions a day. Must have been. And then you got all your recovery and then, you know, up doing it again. It was it was mind-blowingly numb. And yet, just to so, show how simple we would be I think it was a Friday before we'd have a weekend off in the summer. We knew that last thing on Friday would be, you know, a horrible fitness session where people would be stopping and being sick and all the rest of it. But there was a like one of those coolers full of Cornettos at the end. So, I mean, that, that was like our gold at the end of the rainbow. From I mean, it's pathetic, really. Let's get into the World Cup now then. You go through pool play. You've got that one big game against South Africa, which is the one that you have to win. Um, you win that. Then you get into the quarterfinals. You face Wales in the quarterfinal. That was the first real moment you guys thought, maybe this isn't going to go to plan. There was a huge focus on South Africa because we knew if we came top of the group, then we would be playing Wales in the quarterfinals as opposed to New Zealand, I think. And in effect, it gives you a slightly different run in but a run in that you'd think mm, Wales France somebody mm, that could be quite interesting mentally we didn't give enough respect to Wales in that tournament Wales Shane Williams and the like would you know just throwing everything around playing a real different style of rugby because they knew they couldn't play the you know the, the heavy physical stuff up front mm. so they were just playing sevens we were underprepared strategically in that first half we, we trained pretty hard in the week mate you know some would argue we trained too hard and we didn't necessarily have everything in the tank you know that for first half Wales ran as ragged and just you know kept the ball alive through course to the wind Shane Williams running around like a lunatic and, and sidestepping everyone and all the Welsh team were in sync we got into that half time and Clive made a change took Dan Luger off brought Mike Cat on and I think because that style of game suits Catty he loves to play so he there was a little bit right we'll meet fire with fire here 
Whereas I think Johnny was a bit more conservative. Catty was like, well, if the game's going to open up, I'm going to take it on. And mm. he was you know, making breaks and finding holes and, and distributing really well. I mean, Catty was magnificent in that game, that second half. And then we had, because it broke, it broke up a little bit. Jason Robinson does his little break, gives it to Wood Green with scores in the corner and Wales start to run out of steam a little bit. We kick a few goals, the game's done. But it was a huge half-time, probably the biggest half-time in Clive's career, I would say. What did he say? Whether it's necessarily anything that he's said, but it was just the decision to right. do what he did. He had to take with, action. With selection, yeah, at half-time, you know, which didn't happen very often. Yeah, maybe toward getting into the second half, but to sit there and say, right, we definitely need to shift the way that we're playing here and the intensity of how we're playing. And to you know, slightly move Johnny away from that limelight and get Catty involved more and more was a, you know, a big move. You don't want to dent Johnny's confidence. So the way, how he handled all of that was, was brilliant. In the media after that game, there was a players give coach an ultimatum headline about something around you guys training too hard going into that. Was that what happened? Or uh, yeah, I wouldn't, it certainly wasn't an ultimatum. It was more of a... You know, Jono, Jono wouldn't, would never say anything unless it was warranted. Never. Jono would always be very calculating and thoughtful about what he needs to say. And, you know, we did a debrief straight away after the game that night. And, you know, it just came out that we were a bit leggy. You know, we'd done a lot of training, played a lot of, lot of rugby already. And Wales came out and played this fast, furious game, whereas we were a bit more forward-oriented and we were leggy. And so we needed to manage uh, the next week. If you were France, you would potentially look at the way that Wales played to say, oh, hold on a minute, that caused England some trouble. Maybe we should employ some of those tactics. So we needed to have everything in the tank going into that semi-final. So you start dialing back the training, doing a lot more walkthroughs and that kind of thing. You get through the semi-final, let's go to the World Cup final. How are you managing your emotions going into that game? Because when you look at a Rugby World Cup final for a rugby player, there simply isn't another game that comes close to it as far as being the pinnacle of your career. How are you sleeping the night before? What, what are you, how are you controlling your emotions? I mean, you, is it any different than a semi-final? Yeah, okay, marginally. You know, the big games... Huge games. Is it is it any different than night sleeping the night before a Grand Slam decider? You know, marginally. But you know, you'd go through those, you know, those practices of you know whether you're staying. At, I would always stay up late, take take half a sleeping tablet, stay up late, and then crash and burn and sleep through. You know, making sure your nutrition's right. You know, the emotion around the World Cup final is often created by other people around you so whether it's you know the fans singing all night and you know partying and your people just you know making loads of noise and just enjoying themselves it is making you think oh my god yeah this is the world cup final or paul grayson writes me in a mate most amazing letter of friendship and love and you know reminiscing over times and re-emphasizing why i am where i am and because of how I played or, you know, giving me visual cues and all, all this sort of stuff, you, you know, that doesn't normally happen. 
So they're the bits that just tip you over, and whether it's a Grand Slam decider or a semi-final, you know, the, these are the you you know it's not going to get any bigger than this. But you know, you're still well practiced in mm. preparing for those big games. So the day starts. You get to Stadium Australia, the Olympic Stadium, where they had the Olympics in Sydney, and you arrive there on the bus. Is it just following a normal process then? Is it just, it's another game? Well, yeah, we'd had the semi-final the week before, so the environment is familiar. How they set up the changing room. Were you surprised that it was Australia in the final and not, not the All Blacks? The All Blacks, they weren't a great team. They weren't, I mean, they were nowhere near the greatness of, Seven, eleven, and fifteen. Mm. Australia had some like proper superstars in their team. They had game breakers in their team. It was just whether they had the grunt up front. And against New Zealand, you know, it got quite loose. The game got quite loose, and the Aussies were Takiri, Rogers, Larkham, Mortlock, Mortlock. You know, there's, they had some people who could break the line and cause havoc. It's actually a good point with Gregan. Like, cause obviously, you were marking Gregan in the final, and it was. That game in the semi-final when he has the famous four more years boys to the All Blacks. Did he have much chirp for you? And oh, the all the time. George, he's, he's a good mate, and playing against each other for what seemed like forever. So yeah, we had, we had plenty plenty of exchanges. Anything memorable in the final? I mean, I I remember giving him a little bit when Tins picked him up and properly dumped him on his <laughs> ass. But funnily enough, not in the final because Andy Robinson the forwards coach had pulled me aside in the week because he knew that I knew George. He had noticed that those games that I play and I know the scrum half, that if I get familiar with the scrum half in game time, before the game, when we're warming up, you walk past them, give them a little high five or whatever. It was like, I don't want any of that. I, I want steely face, absolute ignoring your opposite number, take them out of their comfort zone because they're going to think that they can come up and say hello, Dawson, you know, whatever. Right. And so that was the first time that I think I'd ever played against George Gregan where I completely, like, blanked in before the game, in the warm-up, in the tunnel, you know, for cross... Because you do tend to cross paths quite a lot, even when you're going out for a pitch inspection with the programme and having to wander around or, you know, absolutely zero... So I gave him nothing because, and he he was right. It, there, for whatever percentage of that, it, he George Gregan would have thought Dawson's being a bit of a dick. But then it, you know it just changes the dynamic slightly. But yeah, I mean George's that was absolutely part of the brilliance of George that he he would properly well like well, like we all did. We'd wind up the opposition and you know get stuck into the referee and. You get into the game. Australia strike first. Yeah, they're and, freaking out a bit. Good, good set piece move. They've obviously practiced that a few times. I'm surprised they never did it again, to be honest. But um, and it, and in a weird kind of way, it kickstarted England. I mean, it was very early on. We were you know, sparring slightly. It then instilled this sort of frenzy. And bearing in mind, we hadn't played that well. Didn't play only play well the second half. France, we were. Second half, we played pretty well, but it wasn't like we were playing like we were in the summer 
against Australia and New Zealand and Benny Cohen scoring tries and one on you know all that stuff or against Ireland in the ground so we weren't playing like that even the warm-up games against France we were brilliant played some amazing rugby some of the most fantastic rugby I've played for England but in the World Cup we just I don't know we were just we were so pragmatic but we were slightly stifling ourselves anyway that try sort of kicked us up the arse to say right you know any time now, start playing some rugby because if you don't, this is what the Aussies are going to do and they're going to win. And we didn't want that first half to finish. Absolutely not. Robbo scores his try. Benny Kay coughed that try up in the corner. Oh dear. But we were causing havoc, opportunities, left, right and centre. We, I mean, we could have scored three tries there. That, I mean, we should have scored two, probably should have scored three. And in the second half, we, you know, we got refereed out of the game, couldn't get any momentum. Never really got in the game. Got to the end of regular time and, you know, Jono pulls us in. It's like we'd not even, we're out of breath. It's like, what, we've just done nothing there for 40 minutes. Right, we need to sort of discipline out. Jace has come on, sort the scrum, no penalties, get ourselves in position. Wilkinson was like practicing his kicks while Jono was talking to yeah. you, right? I don't even think we'd had a shot at goal. So Johnny's gone 40 minutes without a kick at goal. So he's like, like on cold turkey, he's needing to practice because he knows he's going to probably have to do it at some stage. Smart. And that penalty in the first period of extra time was, I don't know, 45 metres out, right-hand side, and he slotted that. It was a massive, massive kick. Big, big kick for us. We were right, okay, we're we're in the game here, no problem. And then, of course, the second half was getting a little bit twitchy Andre Watson was given as nothing gives them a scrum a penalty at scrum time which you know just England were all over the Aussies in scrum time it's embarrassing mm. but he kept penalising us and we, yeah we just didn't just didn't get in out of probably third gear just couldn't click but again when Flatley scores that penalty to draw level again it was like another 17 all moment yeah, where not that we loved our backs against the wall, but we'd got used to this environment where now and again certain things would really piss us off to say, right now, focus, this is what we've got to do. And I think because it went down to that last two minutes, you know, we've been here before, we've practiced, mm. this is what we're supposed to do. Could everybody just tune in and get this thing done from kicking it long? I mean, that was all planned kick the ball long, Lewis Moody would chase. They would kick it out, our line out. And we'd done that in training time after time after time. That was the drill from the very first kickoff to now the last kickoff with two minutes to go to the World Cup final. Then we knew that they would mark up the front because that's where Jono was and they did it in the Lions Tour in 2001 and they nicked it and we sold them down the river to say we're going to go down the front, throw it to the back where it's an easy catch. You know, and then we were just into our drop goal routine, zigzag of that, yeah, zigzag routine. Hit it up left, hit it up right. Let's just make little yardage. It just so happens that Justin Harrison got slightly too wide, looking at Johnny. I've then made a dart, which is part of the zigzag. Willen, Robbo come in to win it. Then Jono takes it up as part of the zigzag. You know, Australia are panicking now because they're in their own twenty-two. They're on edge. I just go down and have like a little body faint, bring them offside and then I pass it when they're on the retreat. So Johnny gets an extra, you know, 
we've done it um, and we just did, did it time after time after time in games in training i cannot emphasize enough how that situation was ingrained in you oh, guys already it was just like a it was, it was a routine it was an absolute routine that we believed we could do at any time and we had done in lots of games you you someone could find lots of footage of us doing exactly the same setting up Wilco for a drop goal. Now going all the way back to 99 when Clive sat this, the leadership group in a meeting and said to the leadership group, how many drop goals would it take to win a test match? And basically saying, what if we didn't go for tries? What if we just, whenever we got into the 22, we just set Wilco up to hit a drop goal and then went back to the halfway and then went back and then got to the 22 and kicked a drop goal. From that moment that Flatley kicked the ball over and we're walking back to the halfway line and we're saying, we're calling the move. So every, the whole, all, every 15 players from England know exactly where they should be, what they'll be doing and what the outcome's going to be. Not we're going for a try. You know, we're going to get to the near the 22 and Johnny's going to hit a drop goal. The opposition knew that we were going to be doing it. The fans knew what we were going to do it. But because every single England player just didn't question and just, we know where the line out is. We know where the ruck's going to be. Going to go and win the ruck. If there is a break, we know how to adapt. Then you take a wee snipe. Well, that, but that's part of zig. That was part of zigzag. It, it was if you know if if I passed the ball to someone, they made a line break. Then everybody would be you know, going into that ruck, and we'd analyse whether are we close enough? Is it easy for Johnny or whatever? If there's a gap from a scrum after go through, he goes through, and then you know we still get into that pattern. It just it happened to pan out that. Because that was a clean line break, we made 10 or 15 yards, got really close to the posts. So the next ruck was going to be the drop goal. You know, the the key part was Jono, you know, in the split second, realising that I was at the bottom of the ruck and he would want the nine pass into the 10. So he took it up and didn't try and over-elaborate, just got the ball and recycled it for five or six seconds for me to get on my feet. And then you're in that position that you've practised a thousand times with your fly half. Some would say, oh, that was a bit risky to try and break the line. It was the right thing to do because there was a gap there. All the Aussies are focusing on Wilco, thinking that we're going to go to Johnny for the drop goal straight away. There's a gap for me to go. The rest of the team come in. I think it's Will Greenwood and Jason Robinson come in to win the first ruck. Then Jono takes the ball up and we're sort of doing a mini zigzag there as well. But then Johnny to call for the ball. So it yeah, it might have looked slightly disjointed, but we've done that hundreds and hundreds of times in practice and in games. And then you bang it to Johnny. Yeah, well, you know, he'd, he'd missed a couple that day already, so I think he was as frustrated as the rest of us that, that a few hadn't gone over. But yeah, I mean, he was just so unbelievably assured and solid, and people would say, you know, he's left-footed, he did it with his right foot. But he honestly, when you were practicing on the training park, if I was on the left-hand side of the post, he would want it on his right foot because it's a straighter drop goal. If we're on the right-hand side of the post, he wants it on his left foot because it's a straight drop goal. I mean, it, it wasn't like he was always trying to get it on his left foot or if I've got to do it on my right, I will. He had this genuine ability. He was just equally good off both feet. So, I mean, it was incredible talent. Incredible to be able to pass that. So, you know, and, and people wouldn't necessarily know or understand the difference but passing it onto his left foot 
in that angle might give the opposition another half a second, which they can cover two yards. So, you know, he always wanted it in the slot so he could just, you know, drop goal straight away, opposed to having to shift his body and be in a different angle, be slightly wider, you know, all those things. He was just so thorough and analytical about how how we wanted to kick the ball. It's so detailed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So you, basically, you just do as you're told. <laughs> so he told he wants you... it here, you're like, you're, I'll put it there for you. Yeah. So you were deliberately throwing to exactly where he wanted it on that foot? 100%, yeah. And not all fly halves were like that. I, I can't think of any other players in the world that were like that. Not even the greats, not even you know, Dan Carter's of this world. If you think world. of Carter's drop goal against Australia... He switched over because he's left footed. He switched over to his left foot and banged that one over. Yeah. And sort of caught it on his right and then moved on to his left. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Wilco just would have hit it with his right. Do you guys think you won the World Cup at that point? You've still got the kickoff to go, though. The, the, footage, will, the footage will show you there, were, there weren't crazy celebrations when it went over. If anything, it was we were all sprinting back, right, get into position where, you know, and, and I mean, it, but it was chaos. Because all of the, you know, the the Aussies were everywhere. Some were on the right, some were on the left, some were down the middle. They needed to get the ball back. We were trying to cover all bases, and then they kicked it off quick. And Trevor Woodman was stand. I mean, why he was standing in the middle of the field, I'll never know. But you know, a prop leaps above everyone and catches it. You know, no one mentions that, but it was so important. When we then caught the kickoff, knew the clock had gone, and just absolutely smash it into the stands. I think we we used to say kick it in the green seats because I think that's a, a, that stems from at Twickenham where obviously the seats are green, but they're behind like the advertising hoarding. So the focus is very much a long way in touch opposed to just in touch. So it was like hit the green seats, yeah. So you've won the World Cup. What like what's going through your head? What's the emotions? You just lay down and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I grabbed hold of Mike Cat, gave him a big hug, and then before you know it, Paul Grayson, who was sat with all the subs, and he came on. And then you, you know, you're just picking your player as you're going around, and that disbelief and amazement and joy and happiness, you know, quite, probably quite sort of selfish from an England point of view. You know, you're seeing the Aussie players and seeing how upset they are, and you're saying, you know, Congratulations on a great game, but in the same breath, you want to jump around for joy and it's your moment. Celebrate with your teammates. Yeah, took a good few minutes, I suppose, to sink in because you you weren't letting it sink in. It was the relief and the joy of winning the game and winning the World Cup that you dreamt about and trained for. But then it's you know even within five minutes where you have just a, a quick what's just happened here. Right, where are my parents? Want to. You know, we all wanted to see our friends and family. And, you know, you see them bringing out the presentation platforms and, you know, watching the crowd go completely bonkers. You know, all, all of that process takes five, ten minutes. And even then, when you're they're doing the, the ceremony and you're all on the... When Jono holds a trophy up and you're doing all the pictures and parading around, you know, it probably wasn't until I was with my mum and dad and the other parents and, you know, that sort of realisation of, what what's gone on and what's happened but then you go back to doing a lap of honor with the trophy and pictures and going bonkers and celebrating and going into the changing room and all the hoi polloi coming in and the 
Prince Harry. Prince Harry and politicians and, you know, anybody who could get themselves an invite were getting themselves an invite, but we didn't care. We were just, you know, drinking and celebrating. The phone's going banana. You know, it's old school analog phone and you're just getting hundreds <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds of text messages. There's no social media or anything. It's just, you know, your phone's going bananas. What do you make of the England team's chances for this World Cup? I think this World Cup will have something just a little bit different about it. I think the rule book gets ripped up this time round. I think there is a real possibility Ireland, France, New Zealand, South Africa are probably my top four, but able to win it. I think England are able to win it. Australia are able to win it. You know, you've got six teams there that you know really I think have a have a proper proper chance at winning it. France at home are going to be really tough to beat. You know, South Africa will be, and New Zealand will be sick to death of everyone talking about Ireland and France. But New Zealand and South Africa will have a part to play in in that story for sure. Yeah. And you're going to be going from a hospitality perspective, aren't you? With it being so so handy for the UK, I'll be there working for the BBC. I'll be there working for STH. I'll be there enjoying the hospitality. I'll be there seeing the country with all the fans. You know, the hospitality is a massive part of rugby. It's quite aspirational because people who have had a taste of that official hospitality around World Cups know that it's like an integral part of, of the game. It gets everybody in a very, very different mood ready for the game. It's not just about sort of turning up to a normal fixture getting in the stands and watching the game. It's, you know, the amazing facilities of the hospitality. It's meeting some of the players that have played in World Cups in years gone by. It's the the atmosphere that those incredible facilities can create. It's the, you know, having a few drinks. It's eating amazing food. It's talking about the game that's going to happen in a couple of hours' time, you know, and then all of a sudden you're going in to watch it and then you can go back and start reviewing how the game's gone and, People are happy, people are sad. It creates a much more sort of rounded rugby day than just going to watch the rugby. You can't experience it in any other way. You can't get it from listening to the radio, watching TV or watching it on a big screen. It's being there the whole day and having that incredible experience of hospitality and match day is, is very, very special. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. I'm very jealous. Enjoy the World Cup and thanks for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. And so th- what's the name of the show? Andy Rowe Show. It is very simple. There you go. The Andy Rowe Show. It's a self-branding exercise. Yeah, it is. Very self-indulgent, that is, isn't it? 